Hello and welcome to this AJPH podcast of August 2018. The Afro-Peruvian song you just heard, and which lyrics I will translate for you later, expresses a universal message to remind us that the racial health gap that plagues this nation should not exist. People of color have, on average, in the United States, reduced health compared with whites. This health gap cannot be explained by innate biological differences, and therefore it must be man-made. One theory is that it is produced and reproduced by society. Institutions, such as states, schools, hospitals, and so on, justify the racial health gap with ideological schemes, and those schemes enable individuals within the institutions, such as politicians, commissioners, teachers, doctors, and so on, to accept it and act upon it as though it were unavoidable. In this podcast, we explore this notion of so-called institutional racism with three guests. My first guest is Mary Bassett. She is the New York City Health Commissioner. She speaks about her experience actively working with the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene to remove racist biases from her department policies. My second guest is Lisa Bowleg. She is a professor of applied social psychology at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., She shares how bias is perceived by the institutional users or clients. My third guest is Georges Benjamin. He is executive director of the American Public Health Association, and he has a vast experience working in politics and governmental practices. He describes the ways that he has witnessed how bias manifests itself in routine governmental practices. This month's podcast has three chapters. We will start by defining institutional racism. From there, we illustrate these definitions. We follow this discussion by specifying how public health agents, researchers, and policymakers can play an active role to combat institutional racism and its impact on the health of the public. One more important note before we begin. This podcast draws from examples that mainly pertain to black Americans, but it is key to acknowledge that the concept of institutional racism affects different populations of color in different ways and depending on historical and societal factors. I am Alfredo Morabia, the Editor-in-Chief of AJPH, and this is July 5th, 2018.
So, chapter one. What is institutional racism? Here is Mary Bassett's response. But when we're talking about institutional racism, or another phrase that's sometimes used is structural racism, which refers to the sort of uber、uh, institutional ways in which racism operates.、Uh, we're not just talking about a collection of biased people. Uh, but of institutional practices and policies that can function even without an individual being personally prejudiced. So, if I'm a bank manager whose bank doesn't make loans in certain neighborhoods, it doesn't matter when you come in whether I think you're a worthy person to give a loan to、uh, because you're black or not. If my bank doesn't make loans in your neighborhood, then you won't get the loan. And that's because of an institutional practice, not a bias. That's really racism. That's the way racism works. As you may have noticed, while we were discussing institutional racism, Mary introduced a synonym: structural racism. But does institutional racism mean the same thing as structural racism? This seems to be an important question that helps us to address the complexity of this topic. I then ask Lisa Bowleg to define institutional racism, and Lisa similarly refers to structures when explaining this term. Lisa, you're a psychologist. How can、mm-hmm. an institution have a psychological trait? Because racism is a psychological trait, no? Well, yeah, but institutions are composed of humans, or, or if you really want to bring agency into it, humans create institutions. I mean, institutions aren't in and of themselves living and breathing organisms. They, they create humans create institutions, and in terms, in terms of the laws and policies and practices and norms that sustain them. But if we step back, we see a much larger historical system that undergirds how people come to think about difference on the basis of race and how they act in the first place. So, for example, if we look into institutions, and in many, I'd say most in the U.S., the people at the top, the people in power making the decisions, are white people, and undergirding a lot of that is this sort of collective belief. That that's the way it's supposed to be, because you know, and you can go down the list: white people are smarter or whatever. The but that's not that's not grounded in fact.、Um, there are laws and systems and policies and practices that help explain why that's the case. So, so the institutional racism is not only、uh, in the policy, but it's in the process of, of building institution too. And, and sustaining them, sure, sure. Let's now see how Georges Benjamin defines institutional racism. Please note that I was in Central Park when I interviewed him, and there were birds all around. Well, you know, racism is defined as this belief that uh, um, people have more value based on race,、um, and so when an institution. Um, behaves in that manner. In other words, decides that one group of people、um, deserve better treatment or different treatment than another、um, based on race. 
then they are basically practicing institutional racism. All right, let's move to chapter two now. After asking my interviewees about how they would define institutional racism, I wanted to find out the specific ways that institutional racism can impair the health and wellness of individuals and their communities. But Mary, my, my understanding is that the, the, the racist component of the, of the institution uh, is visible when uh, whites and non-whites suffering uh, from the same issues like tobacco or opioid uh, addiction uh, have receive a different narrative. I mean, uh, th their conditions uh, and their problems are explained differently. Yes. If they're whites and non-whites. And this is, you know, the way the, the, the institutional racism mediated into policy. So, so. Yes. And it's not new, um, this shift in narrative. Even very eminent people, uh, Jane Addams, who we all consider sort of the mother of social work. She was the founder of Hull House in Chicago and of a movement, uh, the Settlement House movement, uh, that we all venerate. But she focused her settlement houses largely on immigrant white populations, uh, using the argument that these were populations that had a history of civilization and were disrupted by immigration and had all kinds of problems with their children because of culture change. Whereas she considered, you know, the black population just sort of one foot out of, uh, out of total backwardness and, and not, not, you know, having all kinds of internal, um, to their, to the culture, uh, reasons that explained, uh, lack of advancement. So the, uh, the problems of an immigrant white community were seen as ones that were understandable given the trauma of, of changing to a new country, whereas the problems of new black communities in the northern cities reflected a, um, a condition of, you know, having barely been civilized. Mm -hmm. So w would you say that uh, she considered that the problems had uh, personal origins and, and she neglected the fact that they could have, uh, you know, policy origin or institutional origin or structural origins? Yes, she had sympathy for the many hardships of the white population as ones that affected them adversely. The way we hear sympathetic conversations about how opioid dependence should be seen now as a disease, not as a crime, that people need help, not punishment. I fully embrace these approaches. They're the right approaches. But for anyone um, who's been around, there, it, there's something sort of bittersweet about it because we know very well that the narrative was very different when the people who were dependent on substances were, were largely black and Latino. I next asked Lisa if well-intentioned efforts 
that ignored the role of these supra-individual structures could not only fail to improve public health, but even make things worse. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it makes things worse when researchers fail to acknowledge the role of structure and, intent, and then instead individualize or rely on stereotypes. So I'm thinking about most of my research is in the, is HIV prevention and it's HIV prevention with black men. And you can see that if you ask the question, well, God, why are black people so risky? Why, why is HIV so high in this population? There's a way that you can e immediately get into victim blaming and blaming the individuals and something is something about this group of people that is sort of intrinsically inferior or wrong, right? And versus if you ask, if researchers frame the questions in different ways. And so if you ask a question about, well, what are the conditions or contexts that constrain the ability of black people or, you know, black men in the context of HIV to protect themselves from risk? And then you look at the research and the research shows, you know, many studies show that black men are no more likely um, to have lots of sex partners compared to black, to white men. They use condoms at high rates. Um, we've also seen this in research done, national studies done with heterosexual, um, um, adults, right? So black, black heterosexual young adults, no more risky, no more risky than you, than white people. Um, but what happens is because HIV is so densely concentrated in black communities, particularly low income, low-income communities for a variety of reasons. It means that the, the person, like the young girl who's having sex for the first time with her only partner, if her only partner, a black man who's located in one of these communities, her risks are much higher. But white people, by comparison, HIV is not densely con concentrated in, in white communities. And so white people have to do really, really risky stuff in order to get HIV. And so again, the importance of context. And so I think things go really wrong when researchers are not attentive to the role of structure and history, because then you end up stigmatizing already groups that are already marginalized and oppressed. I then ask Georges to provide an example of institutional racism in action, an example that is relevant for public health. Yeah, I, um, there's currently a debate occurring right now in Michigan where the Michigan Medicaid program um, has a work requirement um, that they're putting in their program. Now, understand that there is a there's a movement in this country to put work requirements in um, in Medicaid programs. And just understand that work requirements are, are an attempt, of course, to have people put some skin in the game. Uh, however, um, the fact that we have a disproportionate um, unemployment level, um, which has always been there between particularly African-Americans uh, and whites um, in, in particular, uh, means that a work requirement may be, depending on how it's implemented and where it is, on its face discriminatory. OK, um, it may not be designed to be discriminatory, um, but when you put a work requirement in, in place, that may very well be the impact of that. Now, in Michigan, on top of that, they want to address the fact that some parts of their state have disproportionately high unemployment levels. And so in an attempt to try not to penalize those areas, they're trying to decide how you address 
areas in which there is a disproportionate number of people who, by because there are no jobs, quote unquote, um, they will, um, you know, they will be exempted from the, the work requirement. That exacerbates the problem because in the rural communities where there is a really high unemployment rate, um, they tend to be disproportionately uh, white. And in the urban settings where there is a lower unemployment rate overall, even though there's a disproportionate high unemployment rate for minorities, they tend to be places where they would have to do the work requirement. So what I'm saying is that, uh, in effect, they're going to make the situation worse. Now, this is, this is not a, this is not something they've passed yet, but they're still debating it. They're going to make the underlying bias for work requirement worse by excluding, in effect, white counties and allowing the urban counties where they have a higher percentage of African Americans um, to still have to do the work requirement. Um, so a policy like that on its very nature is, is, is designed to try to address some differences in unemployment levels. Um, but in the impact of it, it will, it will, it will end up being a, a, a racist policy because it will definitely target people of color. Okay, let's move now to chapter 3. Aren't there solutions to institutional or structural racism? To Mary Bassett, I ask, what can institutions do? So, but you are, uh, you know, the, the interest of, of discussing this with you is that you are part of a very important institution, uh, the University Department of Health. How do you see the... Um, racist policy, you know, being generated by the department. That's, that's what I'm Now, now that is a really good question. And you are the first person to ever ask me that question. So I want to thank you for it. And one example was during the Zika uh, scare, which Zika never came to New York, but we had Zika in New York because people from New York travel. And, uh, they go, went to places where there was Zika transmission. So we were recommending, as was everyone, that people get tested after, if they had symptoms after they came back. And, and for women who were pregnant, we wanted them to get tested regardless because of the consequences of Zika infection to, to the, uh, developing baby. When we looked at our data, and we looked at it by neighborhood because in our city, we're a very segregated city. Uh, neighborhoods differ by uh, out health outcomes and by racial composition so that our black and Latino neighborhoods have, tend to have higher disease rates. In any case, we looked and we saw all of our testing in the affluent part of the city. You, you live in New York, so I can tell you below mm-hmm. 59th Street. That's where we were seeing the tests being done. We weren't seeing it in the parts of the city where we know that people had historical ties to the Caribbean. There's a large Dominican and Puerto Rican population in New York, but we weren't seeing testing done in those neighborhoods. And we know people travel back and forth. So we asked ourselves, what's going on here? And 
And that's when we found out that, that we weren't seeing testing offered as uh, often in these neighborhoods. We were able to liaise with the hospitals. And, and, that, and by June, we were seeing a map of testing look like we thought it should. So that was an example of how mm-hmm. using a lens meant that we were more alert to neighborhood variations in, um, in testing, and then we were able to fix it. Uh, we also okay. have been... So, yes. so, so let's, let's, let's build on this example, okay? Uh, that, that's very clear. And, uh, and so you understood that there were structural issues that made people... Uh, get the test or not, and and in some neighborhoods, actually the most vulnerable to Zika, they they didn't take it, and so you, you did what was necessary. So what would have happened? And it wasn't if being offered. It wasn't offered. By it, the it way, wasn't it wasn't offered. being okay. offered. Yes. So so what would a, a, a racist institution? How would they have reacted to the situation that the people who needed didn't? Uh, uh, I mean, weren't offered the test that they should have taken. I suppose that things, uh, some of the things that were said, um, uh, might reflect, uh, race, race, racist ideas. Uh, we shouldn't, um, we shouldn't test people because what are we going to do for them? There's no treatment for Zika, so what difference does it make? Um, the, and it might just upset people. So that's sort of more paternalism, I guess. Than, mm-hmm. But still, one might argue that, that there's a, a less interrogation of paternalistic attitudes when the people uh, who, are, who you're serving are, are black and Latina women. Uh, another uh, is that, you know, people don't want to know. And um, so we don't offer it because they are not interested. And that, of course, is a matter of educating people. There are decisions that a woman could make with her doctor based on the result of the test that were hers to make um, in consultation with a physician. So uh, in this case, uh, there was no resistance to changing it. But what I'm saying is that the way things worked, it didn't result in the map that we felt we should see. So an action had to be taken. It was simply pointing out the data. And then we actually had health department work on um, streamlining the testing because most of it was being done by our lab. There was no commercial test at the time. So we gave put resources into making it easier for clinicians to offer the test. And the result was that we saw the map we wanted to see. So that's mm-hmm. sort of how institutional racism works, right? Unless people look for its impact, they won't find it. Having learned from Mary Bassett what institutions can do, I turned to Lisa Bowling to know what researchers can do. I think that we need to ask some different questions. A lot of researchers, um, myself included, focus on the effects of racism on people of color. I think we also need to understand um, the, the costs for white people of racism. We know, we know how racism benefits white people, but it would be interesting to sort of tackle it from that way and just sort of understand and show white people why racism is costly to them. 
Um, God, what else? Um, I think research, especially white researchers, need to be really clear about their own racism and their privilege and how that shapes the types of research they do, the types of questions they ask or, or, or the types of questions they don't ask, um, what's made invisible or visible in reporting of results. Um, I think there's a lot of work for our researchers to do about themselves um, and how they sort of perpetuate um, racism in their work, even with the best, the best of intentions, for example. And to Georges Benjamin, I ask, what can policymakers do? Making sure that the um, boards and decision makers uh, are diverse, that when people put policies in place, They ask who will be impacted by these policies. Um, don't just look at the fiscal aspect of those policies, but ask what will those policies actually do to real people. Well, we have now reached the conclusion of this podcast. Institutional racism is a complex concept, and each of my interviewees provides a different dimension of the ways that institutions can implement racist policies. Mary Bassett provides us with an understanding of institutional racism within the context of an institution such as the New York City Department of Health. Georges Benjamin approaches institutional racism from the perspective of state legislation, and Lisa Bowleg stresses the historical dimension of institutional racism, including a past that still informs racial health gaps today. At the end of this journey, I believe that the term institutional does not sufficiently reflect the complexity of the underlying phenomena. Institutions are only one component of an array of societal levels by which communities and individuals are discriminated. This is also a historically cumulative process. As a historian, I'm particularly sensitive to this aspect. History is this dynamic dimension of our lives. Although the past does not exist anymore, it is still present in everything we do, in the history we are making now. The term institutional racism appears, therefore, to me too restrictive. And I would suggest we replace it by structural racism. To me, structural is more comprehensive. It's a multidimensional qualifier that more aptly reflects the need for dialogue at different levels and integration of the diversity of perspectives that can allow us to address and resolve the racial health gaps that are still endemic to our society. That's it. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful to all my interviewees for their time, but also for agreeing to publicly discuss a very sensitive and difficult question. I also thank Emily D'Agostino for assisting me with the production of the podcast. Thank you also to Michael Costanza and Shiriki Kumonika 
for comments and edits on an earlier version of the podcast. The musical snippets were composed as usual by Francis Jacob and here feature José Piquio Balumbrosio, a respected heir of the Afro-Peruvian culture, mostly known for its unique music and tap dance. On this track, backed by free Cuban musicians, he reminds the world of this universal truth. Take care of your health, my friend, my brother. Even when you feel good, keep taking good care of yourself. The future depends on you. This is Alfredo Morabia at AJPH. For more podcasts, including podcasts in Chinese and Spanish, visit us at ajph.org or subscribe on the podcast app on your phone or tablet. Para